You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Morning, church. Good rainy morning. You made it. Texas kind of doesn't know what to do with rain, I think. Um, Everyone just kind of stays home or the entire state floods. It's crazy. Well, this morning we are in a second week of a study in the book of James. And if you don't have a scripture journal, we have a whole stack of them in the lobby. And I'd love for you to have one. So after church or if you want to get up now, that's fine too. No one will look at you weird. Go grab a scripture journal. And I want to invite you into this season, this study season that we have together. Where in this journal we have the scriptures on the left-hand side and note paper on the right-hand side. And what's really wonderful about this, if... Those of you who don't like writing in your Bibles or, I don't know, can't write everything you need to write in the margins of the text, you know, this is a really great way of spending time with the Scriptures, studying it, and then reflecting, asking God to speak to you through the Word of God, which He does speak to us through His Word. It's amazing. You should try it. And then to record those thoughts and those reflections on the right-hand side. We're, We're like, really, I'm loving this. Just taking our time, kind of taking a stroll through Scripture and allowing the Word of God to do its work on us. So I want to invite you to do that. Again, those booklets are in the lobby. As we've been going through James, here's what we've been looking at. This is what we want to consider. What does it look like to have a whole life? A life that is full and complete, as James says in the first chapter. A life that's planted in divine soil that flourishes. What does that whole life look like? If we were going to stand back and look at it, what would we see? And in comparison, when we look at our own lives, where are those areas that really need the touch of the Holy Spirit, that really need that example and that presence of Jesus, that really need that fatherly care of our Heavenly Father? Where are those areas in our life that God is willing to make us whole? Well, as we continue, I I, I do pray that God ministers to you and brings wholeness to your life. And I think James has some really important things for us to say, to hear about this. If you missed last week's, you can hear it on our podcast. We covered chapter one. Today, we're going to cover chapter two. Now, James, just as another background kind of thing, is when I mentioned this last week, he has always had a bad rap. This letter has, has been kind of harassed in church history. Luther called it an epistle or a letter made of straw, which was this Reformation era, era dig that basically means there's like not much guts to this thing. It seemed to, to be more precise, contradict something that Paul said in one of his letters, that we are justified by faith alone. James seems to be saying something totally different, especially way, the way that our today's passage, it concludes, faith without works is dead. You can see the rub. Which is it? Are we justified by faith alone? Or is it true that faith without works is dead? You can see the rub, right? The conflict? So how does this work in the Christian life? Who's right? Who do we pick, James or Paul or Luther? Are we made holy by what we do? Praying, attending church, going through the motions, saying the right things, being nice to people in general, all wonderful things. Is that what makes us holy? Or does what we do come from a life that is already made holy? And does it even really matter? 
Or is this one of those questions that in our minds, we go, we'll let Sean deal with that. He's like supposedly our theologian. That's why we like pay for people to do theology, right? We don't have to deal with this. Does this really matter for me? Well, hear me out before you check out. I think it actually really matters for us in our everyday working family life. We've all seen people with a really good game of faith, right? They know how to talk the talk. We've all seen those people. Maybe we are those people in some ways. And on the outside, they look like just really wonderful Christians, but on the inside, their life is entirely different. We might call them hypocrites. Isn't it so funny, by the way, that we can identify a hypocrite 10 miles away? And yet, when we look at our own lives, it's so much harder to see. There are others who put a faith in a special compartment, their faith, their life with Jesus in this special kind of quarantine place so it doesn't mess with the rest of their life. But we know that simply saying that you have faith and and going through the motions and even doing your best to quarantine your faith in your life is not the full faith that Paul and that James seem to be pointing at, this Jesus-shaped faith that we're supposed to have. Paul and, or James in this passage in verse 19, we don't read it, but there's something really important here that I just want to rope in so we help us understand what exactly James means when he says the word faith. He says in verse 19 that those who rightly say God is one, they say that with their lips, but in their lives, there's nothing to it. It's not good enough just to say the creed, for instance, for us. Or for the ancient Jewish tradition, it's not good enough just to say God is one and have a filthy soul and a filthy internal life. How does God is one, how does the creed for us, how do the words that we sing and worship here on Sunday translate into action in our everyday lives? Can you imagine if they did? The church might not have a reputation for being hypocritical. God help us. This is why I think it's actually really important for each and every single person in this room, for us to really wrestle with what it looks like to have a whole life where God is one, Jesus is Lord, translates into our everyday lives where other people can see it. James begins in verse one of chapter two with a bit of a thought experiment. Let me take you on this experiment. He says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, in verse three, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a sit here, please, have a seat, right up front, VIP section. While to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Wow, would we do that? Do we do that? Certainly we, we wouldn't do that with like people who are obviously poor, right? But what other forms of poverty Do we, in our heads, make these distinctions about other people and then treat them this way? This really isn't so much of a thought experiment, is it? And probably even for James in the early church, this probably wasn't just some idea, some exercise for them to walk through. But James, I bet, heard that some of this stuff was going on. It was actually happening. Preferential treatment in the church to the rich while ignoring the poor in their midst. 
But here's James' point. Isn't the exact opposite the way God does things? Isn't it true that God actually gives treatment and care first to the poor, to those who are on the outside, to those that we would look with disdain upon, even subconsciously? Isn't it upside down the way God treats people than the way we treat people? And even if we don't act on those things out loud or out in front of people, don't we inside our own heads make those distinctions instinctively? Maybe culturally we've been conditioned in certain ways about those who are worth our attention and respect, those who are worth our care, and maybe those who are not. Do we make those distinctions? Hasn't God, friends, hasn't God chosen the low lives, the needy, the down and out, the children, the elderly, the widows, the orphans, the weirdos, the outsiders, those people that might make us just a little bit uncomfortable given their political stance, their socioeconomic position, or you name it. Thank you, Tanya. Y'all can do that, by the way. You can yell at me. I love it. Aren't these the ones vested? Aren't these the very ones who are vested like this in the eyes of God? Adorning the beauty of the kingdom, the goodness of Jesus. Aren't these the ones that God comes to first and says, my child, I love you. Have a seat here in my presence. Aren't we those people who are poor in spirit and yet God has come to meet us at the door and bring us into his presence? Isn't that us? If we really believe that, and it translated into action, who would benefit in our lives? Think about this. Who would benefit if we really believed that we are those poor that God has adorned, and that yet there are actual poor and people who suffer all kinds of poverty in our midst that we don't extend the same hospitality that God has extended to us? I I was thinking about this at my desk, and I really don't mean to pick on us, but I was thinking, Lord, what if this is true in our church's life? What would, what would this look like in our church's life? And maybe I'm wrong, but here, here's a go at it. We would probably never have to ask you to serve our children in the classroom. We'd probably have to turn people away if we really believed that they are the wealth of the church. We probably wouldn't have to have a hospitality team. Think about it. We would be so eager to care for people and put our needs second. And we do this well. I'm not saying we don't, but we just probably wouldn't even have to go out of our way. And we'd rarely have an empty seat at our dinner table at home, I bet. We would always be attempting to make space for other people who need it. Maybe we, we would be so eager to give out of our own time and money that like talking about stewardship and tithing and serving, that would just like not be an issue because we're a people who have been marked by the lavish generosity and kindness of God to such an extent that our outward lives show the fruit of it. People look at us and go, something has happened to these people that is amazing and generous. Our faith that we hold in our hearts and in our heads becoming action would pour out into the lives of other people. Others would benefit, our neighborhood would benefit. 
as it is meant to benefit others for the life of the world. You can see why the church is often called the sacrament of the kingdom. All the sacrament is, is taking some inward and spiritual beautiful grace, some quality of God, and bringing it forth visibly and material and actually in the neighborhood. You can see why the church is understood to be the sacrament of the kingdom, because if the church was living out this way, the kingdom would shine forth visibly, physically, materially in people's lives. Verse 5, James continues. He says, listen, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? This is a hard one to swallow in verse 6. He says, but you have dishonored the poor. The ones God has chosen, James says, folks, church, you have dishonored them. These are the very ones that we so often trample over, ignore, and exploit that's a hard thing to hear. I think even when I read this, it feels like I'm dodging a bullet, like that was meant for somebody else. That couldn't have been for me, not for our church. But I think if we're gonna take scripture seriously and not try and manipulate it, but have mastery over us, we have to hear these words. Have we cared for the poor? Probably not as much as we ought to have. Probably not as much as if our faith was on the outside, we, we would. So what is the way of the whole life from here? What do we do knowing that God has adorned and welcomed the poor and those on the outside, and yet we have failed to participate with him and that identity that we have in him? Verse 8 says, you do well. Folks, let's just keep this super simple. Don't go chasing all of these efforts. Do this. Just focus on this. And it will come. Verse 8, James says, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. Do you know what this is? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And not just partially or like mostly, right? But the whole law of God is worth obeying in its entirety. Obeying God's command to love your neighbor as yourself entirely in whole will actually bring wholeness to your Christian life you will see that connection between those internal convictions and the faith that you have in Jesus come and meet those outward actions and the fruit that we see on the outside of our lives for the benefit of other people. If we want to have lives that match the goodness of God that we know we have, that we say we believe in and obey, then we just have to cooperate with God's grace and his mercy and his presence that doesn't just abandon us saying, look, you've really not done this well. I'll come back at Easter and we'll see how you've done. No, he stays with us and he's within us. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that is urging you, that is wanting to work with you. And all we have to do is surrender to this mercy of God and say, Lord, have your way. I trust you. Cooperate. What good is it, verse 12, if you don't commit adultery, but you murder somebody? Well, but I've got this part down, Sean. I just murdered somebody last week, though but at least I didn't commit adultery. You can see how crazy this is to have a compartmentalized approach to this. Instead, we know that that's crazy. The good life is found when what we say matches with what we do, not just in part, but in whole. As James said in the beginning of his letters, that we would have complete lives, whole lives, filled lives, not lacking in anything. And if not, he argues, verse 14, what good is it? If you say you have faith, 
but you don't have works. Can faith save you? Ooh, wait, didn't Paul say that we're justified by faith? We can see that there's two kind of words at play here. Faith is not meant here by James in the same way that Paul means the word faith. So we have to let James speak for himself and not import Paul's definition of faith. Paul has this very fully formed, very rich, a grace of Jesus kind of idea of faith that justifies us in the end, in the final judgment. What James is talking about here is the outward shell of the appearance of a religious life that we say, God is one, I have faith, I do all the right things, but on the inside, there's not much, no, no, no guts to it. What good is it to have the outside if the inside hasn't been touched by the grace of God? We fool ourselves into thinking we'll get anywhere if we can just nail down the right Christian behaviors. If we can just, on the outside, say, I believe in God, but on the inside, our hearts are godless. We think we can get away with just talking a good game, merely speaking about faith, without actually having to deal with the ways that our own soul and our own actions and everything about our lives is enriched and brought to life in a faith in Jesus, a fully formed faith. Let me give you an example. Well, we know better. We say, I'll pray for you. And then we don't. I'm guilty of this. I do pray for you guys. And I try. There's sometimes I say to people, I'll pray for you. And I totally don't. And it, it's awful. What an awful feeling. We say we believe in God, the Father Almighty, on the outside, but then our lives on the inside would actually disagree. If a group of sociologists came to study our life, anthropologists did this whole research project on our life, would they say, this person believes in God the Father Almighty? Or would they say something else? Or send us into the world to do the work you've given us to do, to love and serve you, yes, Lord, hallelujah. But my calendar is just super stacked right now. Maybe I'll get to that, you know, around Christmas or whenever time permits or whenever I'm comfortable with it. You see what I'm saying? If we are a people who are parading around in the liturgy saying these things and internally we're not dealing with the realities of, of conversion, of transformation, of change, of surrendering our hearts to the grace of God and saying, God, make this true in my life. If we just say in the words, folks, let's just go home. I don't want to do that. I remember early on when the Lord was calling me to pastoral ministry, the reason I said no to him the first time was because I thought, look, Lord, I don't even got this figured out. And then I'm going to get up every week at a pulpit, say a whole bunch of things that nobody really cares about is going to do anything with, and we're just going to do it again next week. That sounds awful. I pray that that's, and I know that's not the case, but this is what James is pointing to is kind of those going through the motions without dealing with the matters of the heart and the conversion and the change that needs to happen on the inside, that we would see fruit on the outside. I don't mean to rake us over the coals this morning, I really don't. But I think it's so important that we deal with this. I'm in the club with you. I'm not any different. I struggle with this myself. It's hard to resist what comes natural to us in favor of the way God does things in his kingdom, isn't it? What's natural to us so often contradicts the way that God does things. It's hard. Our lives, apart from the grace of God, apart from his help, 
in this situation are like wilted plants begging for watering that bend over and snap under the weight of behavior management. If we could just get our behaviors right, we would be fine. But the grace of God in this situation is like a gentle mist that brings life to us. The Holy Spirit is that breath within us that transforms us from the inside out, that we would not just see works and we would not just have a mouth that talks about faith, but we would see a whole life that confesses on the inside and on the outside that Jesus is resurrected. He's alive and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we want. We almost miss this point of the good news here in James. I had to go back and look for it as I was studying. In verse seven, if we're not paying attention, you'll, you'll read right over this. Verse says, seven says, is it not they, he's talking about the rich, who blaspheme, listen, the excellent name that was invoked over you? Do you remember this? James calls out what is almost certainly a total nod to baptism. The name that was invoked over you. What is that name? It's the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This name that was spoken over you to determine who you are. Inside and out. The truth of who you are. Joined with the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the name that has the power to change you on the inside. And to see that action and that fruit on the outside as well. Faith. Action. Made together. Made whole under the name of our triune God. And now our lives are freed up to imitate the goodness of God, to participate in his work in our life and in the life of other people. And only on this basis, friends, listen to me, only on this basis, this place of a life planted in Jesus, a life that has been spoken over, In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, can James say, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. It's not the real deal. Because a faith that shows forth works is a faith that has been planted in Jesus, that the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit has been spoken over, that has taken effect in someone's life, and you can't help but see that fruit on the outside. It is a whole life if we would only cooperate with that name that has been spoken over us. When we read James in chapter two on his own terms, you see all of this crack open for us. We see that he's not arguing for a work your way to salvation approach to the Christian life, not at all. But he's something, presenting something much better. He's showing us that lives planted in Jesus, trusting in his life-changing grace, transforms our whole life from the inside out. Anything less is missing something. Friends, this morning, may we ask for God's help here. Don't we need it? I need it. May we ask for God's help here, that we would be enabled to cooperate with his work, not out of obligation, out of stubbornness, but out of love and trust in him because he is the one who is made present even this morning for your nourishment in Holy Eucharist. He is the one who can bring about a change in your heart from the inside out. And he is the one who can renew your desire to live a whole life in his kingdom that benefits other people. Amen? Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.